let's jump in to Paul's opening prayer. So verses, chapter 1, verses 3 to 11 are the thanksgiving and prayer part of Philippians, and it is beautiful and rich. Paul says that every time he remembers the Philippians, he constantly prays with joy because since the first day until now, they have shared in the gospel. He is talking about how they as a church have believed in the gospel since the first day they heard it. When Paul brought the gospel to the city of Philippi, it wasn't that people had a hyped up experience like a summer camp or a conference. It wasn't just an emotional response that quickly fades after the hype dies down, but they had had a true and sincere faith in Jesus since they had heard about him. Paul then expresses his confidence that because God had begun a good work among them, he would bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ, which is the second coming. I love the confidence Paul has. I think it's, it's very reassuring, um, at least to me, when I feel like I'm really struggling in my walk with Christ. But what is the reason for Paul's confidence? The Philippians, like every believer, were redeemed. Acts 20, 28 says that God obtained the church through the blood of his son. Revelation 5, 9, the best book in the Bible, Revelation, so good, um, says it is through Jesus' blood that believers were ransomed. If you buy something that's cheap, you aren't too worried about making sure it stays safe or undamaged. But Paul is confident that God will bring to completion the good work he had begun in the Philippians because God is so deeply invested in them. He is so deeply invested in those who believe in Jesus. Because the price that God paid to begin this work in us is of infinite value. It cannot be measured. God is deeply invested in this project and he is not going to back out of it halfway. He will not give up on his people, and he will continue his work in us and bring it to completion. And I believe that is why that is why Paul is able to be so confident in it. In verse 4, Paul said that he is constantly praying with joy for them. And in verses 9 to 11, he tells the Philippians what his prayer points are. He prays that their love may overflow more and more with knowledge and insight. Why? To help them determine what is best. For what purpose? So that in the day of Christ, they may be pure and blameless. And then Paul goes on to describe what it looks like to be pure and blameless. Having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the, pray, for the glory and praise of God. I think that's a pretty cool prayer. I've prayed that over myself for a few times. It's a good one. Okay. All right. And then in 1.12 to 26, we see much about Paul's character. After his prayer and thanksgiving for the Philippians, he updates them on his life, telling them all about his current situation. They already knew he was in prison because they sent Epaphroditus over there with a gift, but they probably didn't know very many details. Paul describes his situation in a very intentional way, and he is trying to evoke specific thoughts and responses in the Philippian church. In 1, 12 to 14, Paul says that what happened to him actually has helped to spread the gospel. And the way Paul uses this word spread in reference to spreading the gospel is used militarily like an army advancing into new territory. And there are two ways the gospel is advancing into new territory. The first is that the whole imperial guard and everyone else knows Paul's imprisonment is for Jesus. This is absolutely radical. 
because the Imperial Guard was probably Nero, who was the emperor at the time, Nero's own group of elite personal bodyguards. And although the entire Imperial Guard and everyone else isn't necessarily saved, although some probably were, they at least knew. They couldn't get away from the truth of the gospel because for as long as Paul is in chains, he will be preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. The second way the gospel is advancing into new territory is because of Paul's example. Other believers heard of Paul's imprisonment and grew in their confidence in God, and they now preach the gospel themselves with greater boldness and without fear. They saw the impact Paul is having even on hardened soldiers, and they are encouraged to speak about Jesus to their own friends and neighbors. And so, although Paul is in chains, the gospel runs free and unfettered. Okay. So for a minute, talk with the person next, next to you um, and answer this question. Why does Paul tell the Philippians that his imprisonment helped to spread the gospel? And then we will share our thoughts. So, a minute, let's, yeah. notes because that is what I was going to say, you know? Um, that's why. Okay. Like, you, are you the Nate to my Steven or am I the, you the Steven to my Nate? Okay, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so maybe the Philippians are asking the why question. You know, why, why are we suffering? And so I believe exactly like Chloe, Anna, and probably Cameron was involved in that discussion. Um, (laughs) he is encouraging them that through his suffering God can use it to bring um, glory to his name and it's not meaningless okay and then in 115 to 18a Paul talks about two groups of people one group is preaching the gospel in goodwill out of love I love these little like smart art things I think they're super fun I literally waste like four hours every lecture making them. It's a waste of time, but it's fun. Okay, all right. So these people preach the gospel in goodwill, out of love. They know why Paul is in prison. It's for the defense of the gospel. And so the second group 
is preaching the gospel in envy and rivalry towards Paul um, out of their own selfish ambition, not sincerely. And these people are trying to increase his suffering in his imprisonment. And in this paragraph, Paul seems to be talking about the same brothers and sisters that he mentioned back in 1 verse 14. Both of these groups are believers, the ones preaching from love and the ones preaching from selfish ambition. I didn't come across a scholar who disagreed with that, so this is not just Virginia's opinion. Why were there some fellow believers doing this? Why would they have had this heart? Well, um, it could have been out of, you know, just jealousy, you know. Perhaps they thought because Paul was in prison, it's their time to shine. We don't really know. We can only speculate. But what is Paul's perspective on this? In 18a, he says, what does it even matter? You know, the only thing of importance to Paul was that Christ is proclaimed. Yeah. And so he doesn't seem to care too much about the intentions the gospel is preached from. And this is very interesting. The statement... You know, what does it matter just that Christ is proclaimed in every way um, has sometimes been skewed by believers who say that they don't want to cast stones in, you know, calling people out. But this is a problem because desiring unity cannot be a catch-all that stops us from examining um, the truth of someone's teaching. Paul is not communicating that it doesn't matter, that false teachers don't matter. That's not what he's saying at all. Um, Paul didn't cool down a bit in his later years, get more lax towards it from the zeal of his youth. Because in the pastoral epistles, he writes at the end of his life, combating false teachers and an emphasis on teaching the truth is a high priority for Paul. There's a difference between differences of opinion and worship preferences and actual doctrinal problems in someone's teaching. At times, I believe we as Christians can make mountains out of molehills that don't really matter. But then when it comes to the actual mountains that do matter, we look at them like they're mustard seeds and just pass over it. I think that we need to stop blowing up insignificant differences of opinion in worship style or anything that doesn't really matter. Um, and at the same time... We need to stop being naive and putting our fingers in our ears for the sake of so-called unity if there is false teaching or a false gospel being preached. We need to have the boldness to step up and confront a false teaching when we hear it because there is no other version of the gospel. A false Jesus has no power to forgive, redeem, or save anyone. And so I think that, I think Paul would be disappointed at the way that we as Christians sometimes don't call people out for the sake of unity and yeah. So when we come to the next paragraph, which is 118b to 26, I don't have a slide for it. Um, we see that Paul doesn't just rejoice that Christ is being proclaimed in every way, but he rejoices in something else too. He rejoices because he knows that he will be delivered from his imprisonment. He gives the reason why he knows he will be delivered. The reason why Christ will be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. And the reason is what many have called Paul's life motto. For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Paul's perspective on deliverance is different, to say the least. Most people would consider freedom and more time to live as deliverance, but Paul is not like most people because he sees death as liberation as well. In Paul's eyes, it's a win-win. 
And um, in 22 to 26, he talks about whether to live or to die in kind of a pros and cons sort of way, which is very interesting. If he was released from prison and lived, he would have more fruitful ministry, and that'd be awesome. But he more greatly desired to die and be with Jesus. And I think here we see that Paul, <laughs> Paul really believed, not, not that we doubt it anywhere else, but for me at least, here specifically, it really hit me that Paul really did believe in the resurrection. Like He had no doubt in his mind in any of the promises of God. Uh, he believed so completely in the resurrection after death that it affected the way that he lived. Paul lived a radical life because he knew he wasn't just living for this life. He saw the second option to die and be with Jesus as far better for himself. But he recognized the better option for the Philippian church and all of his churches was to remain here on the earth for some time longer. And although there was a risk, Paul was pretty certain that he would remain and even be able to visit the Philippians um, after. Yeah. Okay. So, earlier I said that this chapter shows us much about Paul's character, and I actually entitled uh, 1, 12 to 26 as Paul's eternal perspective. Yeah. So Paul is in what most would call an awful situation. To the world, Paul's imprisonment looks like a huge problem. You know, the traveling apostle is locked up. He's done. You can't have an effective ministry in prison, right? Wrong. And Paul knew that. He saw things differently because he had an eternal perspective. And he used the opportunity to preach the gospel to those who might have never heard it otherwise. How else were, you know, Nero's personal bodyguards going to hear the gospel? And Paul's boldness then encouraged the boldness of other believers. And so this problem in the eyes of the world was used by God in a really awesome way because Paul responded well to his suffering. Having an eternal perspective on his imprisonment and suffering for the gospel pushed Paul to live in a radically different way than he might have had otherwise. Paul also had an eternal perspective on life and death. He is able to rejoice even though he might be killed because he sees the reality behind his death, which is eternal life with Jesus. He sees the ups and downs of life filtered through the light of eternity. He is able to see past the pain of his suffering into what God is doing through his suffering. Paul's eternal perspective is the result of his hope and trust in Jesus and it enables him to find great joy in the midst of his trials, and it empowers him to respond well in suffering. Jesus had an eternal perspective, too. He was God, so it's a little different, um, that he knows everything, but I, I believe that he still has. This is my interpretation, so you can disagree that Jesus had an eternal perspective, by all means. In the desert during those 40 days, the enemy offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And promised Jesus that if he would just fall down and worship him, he could have all of these things. The enemy offered kingdoms and power. He actually offered what Jesus was going to get through the cross, but without having, having to go through the suffering leading up to during and after the cross. Although that would have been easier, Jesus, armed with an eternal perspective, said no to temptation in the desert. And armed with an eternal perspective, Jesus said yes to his father's will in the garden of Gethsemane even though he knew the suffering that he would have to endure. 
I believe Hebrews 12.2 actually speaks to Jesus' eternal perspective. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Nothing about the cross in and of itself was joyful, but Jesus saw past the suffering and tragedy of the cross to the joy that would come as a result of it. So, what is it? What is an eternal perspective? Both Paul and Jesus had one, but how can we define it? And as with any idea, um, definitions are interpretive, but I like these ones. An eternal perspective is seeing through the daily grind, the tumultuous highs, and the frequent lows to the destination of eternity. It is a way of seeing the pain, pleasure, and purpose of our lives as part of the redemptive story that God is orchestrating. Every day we are tempted to have an earthly perspective and to live as if our current lives are all that there is. But what a shallow way to live. Having an eternal perspective reorients us. Gazing at eternity and at the God who awaits us there and who is with us now, we have peace and joy even in suffering. There is contentment with the present because we don't expect complete fulfillment now. Viewing life in light of eternity changes the way that we live on this earth. That is why God has vividly described this future in certain places in our Bible. God is not content with the fragile and shallow living that comes from an earthly perspective. He wants us longing for the new creation and living towards it. He wants us restlessly patient for the future so that we are incredibly productive in the present. So my prayer for myself and for us as a class is the prayer of Leonard Ravenhill, which is, Oh Lord, keep me eternity conscious. I think it's such a beautiful prayer to pray. So, you know, oh Lord, keep us eternity conscious because um, when we are, we live radically different and we live how God intends us to when we live in light of eternity. And with that, my computer says it's 10 o'clock, so we will be taking our 15-minute big break now.